Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon and welcome to the Australian Studies channel of the New Books Network. I would like to begin by welcoming Annika. I bet I've said that wrong. Annika Smith, Annika Smithhurst, who has written a book called On Secrets. Annika is presently the political editor at the Age newspaper in Victoria in Australia. She hosts a podcast called The Briefing and is a director of Australia's National Press Club. Prior to this, she was a journalist with News Corporation, and it was in that role, it was through that role that the events in her book called On Secrets, published by Hachette, is explained and explored, and it deals with themes which we're going to discuss today, including freedom of the press, and I think another aspect of it is when someone who is normally in the media becomes the story and the importance of the press and democracy. So, Annika, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And, yes, you actually did get my name correct, so don't be too worried about that. Not many people do, but you got it right. Oh, good. Now, I have read your book, which was, well, it was enjoyable in a strange way. It was enjoyable because it gives rise to what I found a lot of, there's a lot to think about through what you write because it does tell a story and I'll invite you in a moment to tell what actually, to explain what occurred. And as a political journalist, you are acutely aware, and it comes through in the book, of the importance that journalism can have in a society, especially in, as a check on political power and, and how that can so easily be lost. Would you mind beginning by letting us know what the background to this book was. Yes. Um, before I do that, I will point out that, yes, that's exactly what journalism should be, and I think we can go to that later, but it is unfortunately lost. A lot of people, um, especially through the pandemic, have, I guess, opinions on the role of journalism and journalists, and, of course, we do in some ways work for the public, not necessarily are paid by them, but we, we have a responsibility to provide the public with information. But I feel increasingly we are caught up in um, quite a war of what people think we should do and and, um, what we do do and sometimes they don't always correlate. Look, I was working at News Corp and uh, I wrote a story um, way back in 2018 in April about um, a proposal by the federal government to actually use one of their um, defence agencies. And I use the word defence because we have a lot of sort of areas within defence And by its very nature, defence means to defend, you know, foreign powers, to be defending Australia against foreign powers. Um, There we have Victoria Police, we have South Australia Police and AFP and and a bunch of agencies that look at people that are up to no good in Australia. Um, But the ASD, which is the Australian Signals Directorate, is a defence agency and it is meant to protect us Uh, from foreign threats and they do this by doing I guess the online or cyber snooping. It's a signals agency that's existed uh, sort of came to rise after World War II. Um, There was a proposal put forward to actually use this incredibly powerful agency and, and the intelligent people that work there to spy on people within Australia. Now um the claim was that they would be people that were up to no good, pedophiles or people involved in terrorism Um, But there are already mechanisms to do this and it was a 
a significant change and something that upset a lot of people within, I guess, defence and intelligence communities, that one of our most, um, I guess, impressive and, and, and um, skilled group of spies would actually be given legislative powers to spy on us as Australians, something that had never been done before and there'd actually been warnings from within the defence and intelligence communities not to do this. Now, I mm. got rise of this um, and wrote about it in April 2018 and was referred to the police uh, and about a year later, a little bit over a year later, they came knocking at my door and uh, infamously raided my prop- property. Yes. and. The parts in your in the opening of your work, you talk about when the police turned up and raided your property. The event has a real has a few elements I'd like to explore. The first is the, the actual setting is described well in the book. It's it's a cold day in a cold part of Australia. The whole that that in itself seems to be relatively unpleasant. And then it's as though the police come in. They have a warrant. We'll talk about the warrant in the High Court in a bit later on. They go through your house, through your personal effects, and it's it seems to dawn on you that you have become the subject. You're not you're no longer examining. You're no longer standing back and examining the world like a journalist might like to do. But you are now the focus of one people who have authority over you, and it, and then another thing I'd like you to comment on when, they, when these people are in your house is there's almost this idea that they can just sort of, the police officers can sort of just be overly familiar with you in the sense of having chit-chat with you and here they are intruding on your life. And they might be saying, oh, I think one of you, you comment that one of them saw a cookbook which they also had or they had heard of or something like that. So could you just comment on the experience of having that intrusion? Yeah, look, I have never had any run-ins with the law. Um, you know, I'm... I'm- at the time, and I still am, I was in my early 30s and uh, maybe being pulled over for a traffic offence once or twice in my uh, sort of 12 decades, 12 uh, years of driving, but I'd never really had any sort of big interaction with the law, so I I really didn't know what to do. This wasn't just one or two officers. Um, It ended up being, I think, around six officers that were at my house, plainclothes police from the AFP. They were armed. Uh, I lived alone at the time in in a modest Canberra apartment. There's a lot of uh, sort of apartments in that area that politicians and staffers and journalists live in. Um, And I was home on a Tuesday morning. It was uh, just after the election. It was cold and I got a knock at the door. I honestly thought it was a house cleaner. I'd asked uh, for a sort of a requested a quote because I'd had a stain from on the carpet and I thought I better get that cleaned. I did rent and it wasn't. It was the police. And um, it, it appears they probably had been watching me for a little bit because they did know I was going to be home, which was a rare moment of me being home um, at the time because there'd been an election and I'd had a lot of interstate media commitments. So that rattled me to start with. I was only home for about an hour window and, and they did turn up in that time. Um, they handed me a warrant. I'd never seen a warrant before, especially one with my name on it. Um, and I could feel myself shaking. I, you know, my hands were shaking. And I knew when I wrote this story, there was a possibility that the police, they'd, they'd actually announced they were investigating. But often with these things, they have a bit of a look. They realise they can't find the source. They know that journalists are going to be unlikely to reveal their sources. So the investigation tends to go away. Often you don't end up with six police at your front door. 
Um, they let themselves in. I rang my work. I asked for some lawyers to come over um, to watch the search, but we really didn't have a lot of power. They were able to search for through everything in my home, which took about eight hours. I'm talking every page of every book. Uh, they didn't mm. just sort of um, look in a filing cabinet or in papers. They went through my oven, um, my fridge, my freezer, anywhere they thought I could have hid information about this story, which I had written a year prior. Um, and, yeah, it was sort of a strange sensation because I was – they were on my phone, they were on my computer, they were checking USBs, hard drives, anything I had in the house. I didn't want to leave the house because, um, which I was told I could have, and the lawyers would have stayed and observed the search, but there was media outside my front door. Um, I also didn't feel comfortable leaving all these people in my house, even though I had no rights to stop them. And they started chatting. There was a few times, I think some of the police, maybe not all of them, some may have had sympathy for my case. I, I assume you go into the police force to chase proper baddies, not thirty-one-year-old journalists. Um, maybe speaking, maybe that is the reason they go in. But there was an attempt to, I guess, chat to me about some of the things in my house just to make small talk. I did feel though that in some cases it was a bit of a trick, and probably because as a journalist I may have fallen into the same trap before of trying to warm up a subject by finding common ground and. Um, there was one particular police officer that did try and ask me a number of things about who I would have talked to or, or about the story, and, of course, I didn't answer those questions. But I, it was hard to sort of, I guess, work out what sort of relationship I should have with these people that were spending eight hours in my house in my small apartment with me. Uh, you don't want it to be confrontational. Um, there's no point in that with it when they had a warrant. But um, it was one of the strangest days of my life. And also while this was happening, you know, it was being broadcast live on television and had also piqued the interest of media around the world. Yes. And with the, um, I'll just say quickly, because I don't want to focus on this too much in this interview, the matter did end up in the Australian High Court, the highest judicial authority in Australia. And the police, the 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 raid itself, as I understand it, was found to have been unlawful. And the reason for that was because the the wording in the warrant itself was not able to satisfy the law a warrant had to be issued under. But And with that, though, the so there's that aspect of it. So I, that wasn't, in a sense, I imagine it wasn't as though the there was any statement as to whether or not the police could or could not do what they did had the warrant been correct it just didn't happen to be correct and the second point i'd like you just to comment on is first well one is the experience of the high court and whether that was actually any sense of vindication and secondly what were the police what do you think they were trying to achieve from this search what would what was their ultimate goal in doing this Look, if you believe what's in the warrant, their ultimate goal was to find any sort of notes or um, anything I'd jotted down about the story, really, um, the, you know, phone numbers or somebody I may have spoken to or notes, and that's sort of the parameters that they set out in the warrant that they may have been looking for. Um, there has been talk about whether it was actually more about intimidation. Uh, there was a raid at the ABC the day after. And a way of sort of, I guess, clamping down on media and on press freedom. I think there's an element of both. I think they were trying to look for anybody I spoke to, whistleblowers or um, anyone who may have speaking, spoken to me and perhaps they didn't want that person to speak out. And I think it did have a chilling effect 
on not only journalists but on um, public servants who are prevented from speaking to people like me and without even needing to charge me or to take me to court, uh, that, that effect has happened. I think that was one success they may have had is shutting down would-be whistleblowers. It's a hard thing to measure, but I suspect that that um, has been the case. Look, they were keen to take it further. They wanted evidence to therefore charge me with publishing, I guess, state secrets in their mind. Um, mm. I didn't see it that way. Um and it's nothing, you know, I don't believe that I did do that. But it was that was the essence of what they were after and what they wanted to pursue me for. Um, mm. We didn't get to that stage. They didn't end up pressing charges. They said there was insufficient evidence to do that. Uh, but before it got to that stage, we challenged the fact they even came to my house to search for such things. And as you say, the, I guess what allowed me to win in the High Court was ultimately that it was a sloppy warrant. It had been uh, whacked together. It didn't have enough evidence. It wasn't detailed enough. Um, and that was actually how I had my victory in the High Court. I, as Not only had I never had run-ins with the police, I'd never been to court in my life other than to be a court reporter occasionally. Um, so to sit there in front of the full bench um, of the High Court and have, you know, my name, Smethurst v. The Commonwealth effectively, was terrifying. Um, you know, in hindsight now, I guess I had my my castle moment, my Daryl Kerrigan moment, and I, I took on the big guy and we we had a win and you, you're never going to turn down a high court win. But even when we were delivered that win, it didn't actually change my prospects. It didn't turn around and say, well, the government, uh, the police won't charge you. That came later. Uh, they were still allowed to keep the evidence they took from my house mm. despite the fact the warrant which they used, um, was seen to be unlawful, which is rather incredible. Yes. Did you have an experience in the courtroom where, as I mean, I'm, I'm a lawyer, so in, in, I often think this, in the courtroom, if you're a party to the, to the litigation, you're the person who the, the lawyers and the judges are, are considering, did you feel that your life has to be absorbed into the court process has to be so broken down and so particularized and, and articulated in such an objective way that it loses touch with the actual emotion of the experience you suffered or did you not find that um look you know I, w I was an observer I wasn't in the dock so I guess that's a sort of a different way to see it but um to sit there in the high court and hear you know um my name be used and, and to see it on the documents and in a high court battle, it was very sort of, it was like an out-of-body experience. There was um, teams of um, solicitors and barristers and QCs and assistants and from the top echelons of the Lord right down to the bottom assisting and they were all there discussing me but it wasn't seen hmm. as a personal thing. It, it felt very strange. It was um, intimidating and, and stressful but it didn't feel like it was about a personal thing. I felt like um, I'd handed over, I guess, the keys to my life and um, my freedom to my law team and I just had to trust them and it, it's a strange feeling and I have a new South found sympathy for anybody caught up in any sort of legal battle and one of the main reasons for that is the time these things take. Um, you know, we ended up in court and, and only really getting cleared uh, at the st in 2020 after a story I wrote in 2018 and it's a terrible thing to have hanging over your head. Yes. I got that sense through reading the book that your skill set as a journalist in a strange way would have, would have 
been expanded by this process by seeing that the emotional impact that events can actually have on a person's life when you've, you've had an event happen to you. Now, um, moving on to journalism, there's a, a theme in the book seems to be that there are there's journalism and then there's journalism or there's stories and then there's stories. So there can be, you give examples of very important stories where some, where, for example, this one where there's a, a raid by the police to try and obtain information from a journalist, which is generally, or at least I would have thought traditionally seen as having some form of at least societally respected confidence around it, the journalist source. And then on a serious political issue, which maybe in the media, but not actually absorbed in the public imagination. And then there's like the next tier down, which might be a political scandal and involves the sexual element, which will be more taken up. And then you come to this story where you wrote once about rude number plates on cars in the street that were, that were taken off the, off the road. And that, and if I, if I read the book correctly, that captured the public imagination far more greatly. So what, what the, what should a reader take away from those? those hierarchies of examples. Look, it's interesting. You know, we'd all love to write everyday Walkley award-winning stories that involved, you know, deep throats handing us documents like Watergate, but it's just not the reality. You know, newspapers or news bulletins, um, radio bulletins, still have to give people news of what's happening during the day. An example, you know, before I came to this interview, I was out um, with the Victorian Environment Minister um, covering a ban on single-use plastics. Now, that's an announcement they've made. It's something I'm reporting on. Um, but it's not sort of to the level of, um, I guess, the sort of stuff we want to be doing every day. But newspapers are still, you know, a paper of record and, and it's important that you can go back to those things down the track and, you know, learn about what happened on that day. Um, equally, Australians will regularly say, you know, they're not interested in, sex scandals and this isn't in the public interest but um we see what sells new newspapers and what people click on and um i can tell you the evidence is wrong people do actually find these things very interesting as do they gossip because otherwise websites like the daily mail wouldn't be in business so look you know there are i, I write a lot of things as journalists as a journalist and i did find you know this story despite having huge ramifications for the public was hard i guess for them to uh, have an interest in compared to, say, um, an expenses scandal or something they say every day, like, as you say, dirty number plates, whereas the idea, concept of a secret government agency you don't know a lot about, being able to spy on people, and a lot of people say, well, if I've done nothing wrong, I've got nothing to worry about. But with every legislative change that um, impedes on our freedoms, I think it is really important we sit up and take note and we challenge why this is happening. Um, but getting the public interested in such things can be difficult. Yes. Now, there's the phrase you use in the book, the f thinking of journalism as being the first rough draft of history, and which suggests that journalism has a, or one, has a role in being a record of, of what happens in the society, at least as a first rough draft, and then secondly, has a role in a democratic society in actually stating as a record of what is happening or what has happened. What are your thoughts on the actual role of journalism in a society? Look, I think this is sometimes lost. Um, we have a role to help the public, but we're not necessarily, I guess, 
employed for by them. Um, you know, the ABC is one notable example where that differs, but businesses can start newspapers. You know, it used to be whoever could buy ink in the barrel. Uh, in Australia, that was always the Fair, well, recently the Fairfax family and the Murdoch family. Um, recently, uh, the Nine Network, you know, network have taken over the Fairfax papers. But um, we, that, does, that doesn't mean we don't have a role in, I guess, helping the public understand what's going on. Um, should we not have journalists? We would have governments making announcements, as we have throughout COVID, telling us how wonderful they've been. And sometimes they do do great jobs. I'm not saying they always do bad jobs. They often have the best intentions. But as anybody who's worked in a big organisation or government or the public service knows, mistakes happen, things don't go to plan. And I think that's where the role of journalists come in, is to report what's actually happening, not the spin, not uh, what they want in the press release, not what the minister likes to announce, but the background of that. And there are many ways to do that. Sometimes whistleblowers come forward. Sometimes we have to hunt them down. Sometimes it takes days and days of getting on the phone and just calling people to get the real story. Um, I think that's the role. It's to hold governments and organisations and public figures to account for what they do and then the public can decide with all the information. So I see that as our role. That's not always the role. Sometimes you open a newspaper and it's just a report on the football. What happened? That's still important. That's still journalism. But I guess when you talk about journalism and the fourth estate as a concept, why we have a media, that is why we have need, need an important and free media to fulfil that role. Yes. Has journalism, in your opinion, or how has journalism become more difficult? Because one thing and this became this was very apparent prior to the pandemic when Mr. Trump was the president in America. And there were those famous scenes in his press conferences where the journalists had the well one, getting in, getting credentials to appear at a press conference seemed to be quite difficult. And then secondly, the ability to be shut down during a press conference. So it's almost as though the government thinks, yes, we have to interact with journalists at some level. But if we can control that this, the, the field on which we interact, we can then, in a sense, make sure that our news, our, the, the, government, the way that a government might want its own policies presented to the media can be much more readily sent out in the way they're happy with. And that would seem to me as a, as a journalist to make your life more difficult to actually find a different explanation for things. Is that correct or not? Absolutely. There's a number of reasons how it's got more difficult. Um, The government employ a lot of spin doctors. Um, In many cases, more spin doctors and and media advisors, press officers, communications departments, however you want to frame it, they employ more of them than often the journalists in the press gallery reporting on them, which of course makes it very hard because if you line up our teams, there's more of them trying to spin the story than there are trying to uncover it. And we're only, you know, our resources are only run so, uh, we can only spread so thin. So that's one problem. I think um, there's been a lot of efforts to discredit journalists and Trump is a great example. He's sort of at one extreme. But even at lower extremes, I see premiers, state ministers, federal ministers, um, federal members of parliament do it here. Um, I don't accept the premise of your question. Um, you know, well, that's not mm. right. Um, they're, they're subtle. Um Fake news has often been used as, as sort of one way to discredit journalists. This was done less previously. It doesn't mean police didn't want to wriggle out of questions, but 
to sort of, um, I guess, take on the whole, uh, the journalist personally, take on their organisation, try and discredit them in that way, um, as, opposing, as opposed to just asking, answering the questions that we have the right to know as the public because we pay these guys. We give them a lot of tax money, in some cases close to 50% of your pay, depending how much you use, plus the GST every time you go to the supermarket, the 10% of your grocery bill. This all goes to these governments to spend, to decide what they spend it on. And we have a right to know and then we have a right to stand there and ask questions of these people and they need to answer them. This is the very essence of a democracy. Increasingly, there just is this sort of, I guess, dismissal of this being an important thing that has to happen. Um, And I think it's really worrying because whether you like an organisation or you like a particular journalist, it shouldn't actually matter. You should you know, there are journalists and radio stations and TV shows and newspapers we all like and and ones we like less. But I think we should still defend the right of those people or those organisations to ask questions. And the more the merrier, you know, the more journalists and and the more organisations that partake in this, we should encourage that because I, I fear for a sort of day when we don't have journalists and we don't have organizations that are willing to pay journalists to go and grill and uh, investigate these areas yes now annika the part of your book focuses on the concept of whistleblowing whistleblowing is what gave rise to this the asd in australia a person associated with the asd in australia gave some information which they obtained of it would seem, it would seem suggested they obtained as an employee of a department. And the, if you're an employer, you would like your employees to be, have to respect confidentiality. And then an employee, they might find themselves in a spot where they see that what the organization they're working for is doing something which is unlawful, or even if not unlawful, to them at least, to the employee morally repulsive and they think it's morally impulsive to a level that ought to be made public. And that can be, that's what gives rise often to whistleblowing. The first question I'd like to ask is, is that how you understand or how do you understand what whistleblowing is? Um, I've had this put to me that, you know, what is whistleblowing compared to, um, you know, whistleblowing as opposed to just, um, I guess, it, an employee wanting to get their way and put their uh, views forward, um, there is a difference. Uh, look, I see that you know, when you write a story about a politician, it's very easy to ring other politicians and find someone that dislikes them. Uh, by their very nature, there's always factions, people don't like each other, there's big personalities and egos. That's not necessarily a whistleblower. You know, That is a source, that is a source of information. You still may wish to protect them. But whistleblowers usually um, have information that it would be illegal for them to um, give or it would be controversial for them to give or they're not um, perhaps permitted to speak by a certain organisation. We see this, say, at um, you know, banks or something, that um, the CEO or the spokespeople or the executives might be able to speak. Uh, Lower-level branch members maybe don't have that, that they sign privacy agreements or non-disclosures or for whatever reason they might not be permitted to speak but that doesn't mean they don't have um, things they want to say and often 
we need to protect them and it needs to be protected in law so that people that see wrongdoing in a hospital or an organisation or a government are allowed to speak up. And there's a lot of information on whistleblowers and we see that overwhelmingly, you know, most of the time, they try and raise these issues internally first. Very people, very few people just go to the media. Often they, uh, you know, go to an internal body or they raise it with their bosses or with their colleagues, sometimes a sort of um, a watchdog in their industry. And it seems to be a point of last call that they actually do go to the media when they're not getting enough, um, I guess, action. We've seen that in the terms of um, Banking Royal Commission. There were a number of really decent people that saw what was going on and saw um, in, you know, things in the system, structural problems that were really targeting um, people that didn't deserve to be targeted and, and it, it was awful. They went internally and spoke up. They went to the watchdog and still got no action and it wasn't until they went to the media that a royal commission into the banking sector was launched and now we have some significant changes. We've also seen this in aged care. So that's the role I see of a whistleblower. They are incredibly brave. Um, if you think about yourself listening to this, all of us, you know, we often walk past things in our workplace or in our life which we don't speak up about, even though we know we're wrong because of for whatever reason it's difficult, we fear repercussions, we just don't want to be dobbers. And the people that do speak up, are brave and they get change and they we should thank them and we should put them on a pedestal. But increasingly this country looks at whistleblowers as, as bad and as dobbers and, and people that won't toe the line and I think that's a real problem. Yes, it's, and it's an, another observation I think which comes through in the book is that the, as you've just explained then, the actual act of being a whistleblower is incredibly stressful on the individual. But it's also something that is, it's, if, it's if it's put into a nice, lovely Hollywood movie, it's a movie everyone cheers about, but the actual, that's so different from the reality of life of who would, what's actually involved in doing this. And your book focuses on comments on some type of law reforms in relation to or what should be done about, around whistleblowing, should, should, what protections can be put in place for employees. And because there's... You can see arguments each way. It's not. It wouldn't be right. Some people might say it's unfair for an employee to say, "I think this is bad," and go out to the world and say something about the employer, only to be found out that what they said was totally wrong and they were just off, off the mark. Whereas, if something important has happened, it is important that the that the society learns about that. Do you have any thoughts on how to balance those concepts? And if there is anything we can do in a country like Australia to make it more accepting of whistleblowing yeah look it's a really hard area to legislate because as an employer you do need some sort of confidentiality and privacy um to run a business sometimes you know um things might be commercial in confidence or uh if you work in a hospital of course you need privacy for patients i think what would go a long way is a protection for whistleblowers to you know be covered by law that if they tried all the correct elements if they tried to go internally, if they tried to go to a watchdog and then they went to a journalist um, and, you know, still provided those sort of protections we'd expect, like, um, you know, personal details being taken out and, and things like this, that should a, pro should a uh, workplace then try and prosecute a, uh, an employee, that they would be protected. You know, currently look at our hotel quarantine system. There's been issues. Um, some staff who work in hotel quarantine worried that, you know, 
it's not operating as it should. And we have a right to know that. We don't want to go into lockdowns again uh, where it's, it affects public health. It has wider implications. And surely if a doctor or nurse saw what was going on in there and was disappointed and had tried to fix it um, by raising the matters, I think, and, you know, if nothing was done, I think those sort of people should be protected from speaking out and, and pointing out some of the structural problems because, sadly, that's so often the only way we get change. And, look, overseas there are models where whistleblowers actually get financial payments for speaking up. They're put on a pedestal. Um, mm. There isn't financial incentive to actually fix problems. We're a long way from that here. I don't know if that would work and, and who would monitor that. But I think it would at least go some way to changing the culture of how we view these people. Yeah. And your work, so the, the, the point you've just expressed, Annika, that's well made in the book. Another point which is a bit worrying that you also make later in your work is it seems that the, 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 that sentiment you've expressed that there should be protection for whistleblowing is also in now being expressed in a society, in a culture where at least since 9-11, the events of 9-11, governments have got have seemed to have been able to make more intrusive laws more freely. So things like uh, COVID-19 since and the terrorism laws and suspicion about people from different cultures, whether they're going to be terrorists or not, seem to create a level of toleration in a society for, for laws that are more intrusive, which seems to almost be the opposite of whistleblowing laws, which would be more expansive. Do you think there is a tension between those two concepts? Look, since September 11, in Western countries, we've actually seen a lot of laws taking away our personal freedoms. And I think people are willing to do this when the threat of, I guess, terrorism or, or violence or risks to their safety come up. People are willing to hand over um, a lot of the freedoms we take for granted, especially in a country like Australia, where um, you know, raids by journal, uh, raids by the media, against, by the police against the media, and and crackdowns on, I guess, um, rallies and stuff like this aren't as common as say we see in um, develop in the developing world. So I think we do get complacent, and you know, we do want a strong national security law. I'm not somebody who thinks that we should hand over all these things, but if you look at regimes that have a strong grip and power of their people. Often these things aren't implemented all in one. It's a slow chipping away of personal freedoms or rights. And I just think we should be hyper aware of any time the government um, does anything to monitor or surveil us. Uh, often it will be said that the, the reason for this is national security and is to keep us safe. But once those things come into law, we know they can be misused and mismanaged and mishandled. And it's very hard to unwind them and rarely do governments want to give freedoms back to people. So I think every single bit of legislation in this area deserves to be monitored and deserves the maximum coverage. And I think just as as, Peter's, as people, as constituents of this country, we should be hyper aware of what, they, what governments are doing in this space. Yes. Um, just a couple more questions. There was, and I want to ask you here about the as a journalist the difficulty as a, that a journalist has when a whistleblower or a tip-off is given to a to a journalist to ensure that it has some accuracy and one of the reasons i say that is just this morning in australia there were press reports of a couple of federal 
politicians referring a matter to the federal police, which involved potentially a, a an alleged sexual assault by a minister of the government. I'm not sure if it was former. And you could tell the way in which it seemed to me these politicians referred this. They were very careful not to disclose any names, really what it was about at all. And I got two two senses there. One was, of course, there was privacy issues of, the, of people and presumptions of innocence. But secondly, there seemed to be a consideration that this might just all be a bit of a, a a bit of a setup to expose these to hope that these politicians who were given this tip off would say something that proves obviously to be incorrect. And I thought, gosh, if you're a journalist in this area, you really have to make you really are backing up that the person who's giving you this tip is actually accurate in some way. How do you balance that? Yes, and I think so. Uh, one of the bigger problems here is so many people now. Um, we have a hyperpolarization of uh, the electorate. Really, you know, people read news, and uh, if it's sort of uh, critical of the team they like or the politician they like, then they're inclined not to believe it. And if it's uh, critical of someone they dislike and is on the other side, they're more inclined to believe it. And this is a real problem because when tips like this come in. We have to take them at face value. You have to investigate as you would anybody. It doesn't matter which side of politics they come in uh, and test the veracity of these claims. Now, I'm aware of the letter you're speaking about. I believe I'm aware of, you know, who this is regarding. But due to Australian defamation laws, I, you know, I think that's one reason why a lot of journalists are going to be very careful in this area because everybody is entitled, whether they're a cabinet minister or not, to, you know, innocence until proven guilty. Uh, there is no charges in this case. This is a claim. This is an allegation. Journalists will investigate this as thoroughly as they can, but there are structural things which limit how we can investigate. And that goes to my story or to this story. And it goes to press freedom that, um, you know, whether it's banning people from speaking to us or uh, strict defamation laws that make um, it difficult to report, there's only so far you can go and, and we often see people um, yelling at us on social media or flooding our inboxes saying, why can't you name these people? You're protecting them. It's not true. It's just we're not going to put ourselves, I guess, at, at risk of jail um, and journalists have gone to jail. Darren Hinch, for example, has gone twice for naming um, alleged sex offenders. So there, not many people are willing to rate that risk. I would never put it, make a journalist do something that would put their freedoms at risk. We, we can only do so much. But I think that goes to the very heart of what we're talking about, that there are structural problems and protections that journalists require to make them do their job. And it's a hard job. It's not always easy. And um, sometimes you can chase a tip like this and you want the story to be right because it's a cracking yarn. And then you find out a piece of information that actually takes away all the work you've done and it turns out that it wasn't quite what you thought. That's disappointing. But in those cases, you know, that's the reality. You can't report something that isn't true and you have to convince yourself of that by gaining as much information as you can through sources and witnesses and, and whistleblowers. Hmm. Okay. Well, I think I'll, I'll finish up shortly, but, and Nick, I thank you very much for your time. I'd just like to um, recommend the book to people out there who are interested in this subject. It's called On Secrets, and you've touched on some of the main themes in it. The book is also well-written and has some, just a couple of, I'm not going to talk about these now, but just a couple of interesting bits. There are some features about the pet dog, um, 
some adventures in Ikea and a great story about a can of beetroot. So feel free to read the book and <laughs> those three things can await you. Um, and I love the bit about beetroot where you use the word, such an Australian word, I've just read so well, pinched. <laughs> yes, maybe my only other run-in with the law in, his, in my entire history was about a can of beetroot. Yes, so I'll leave that for people to discover for themselves. Uh, and what are you are you planning on writing, publishing more in this in this area, as in a book form publishing rather than a, a journalistic newspaper publishing? Uh, look, I, I really enjoyed the process of writing a book. Um, writing about me was quite difficult. As a journalist, we're used to writing about others, uh, and I found it a little uncomfortable. I am writing another book at the moment, this time on the Prime Minister, and gladly I'm not going to feature in it. But, look, in terms of press freedom, I didn't want to become the poster girl for press freedom. In many ways I was. Uh, I guess that goes to the fact the ABC raids the day after were in an office. They weren't in the personal home of somebody uh, I think what played into that was um, unfortunately the way our society is structured was because I'm a female who was living alone and this was quite a, um, I guess, aggressive act to come to my house and, and to do these sort of raids. So um, I didn't ever want this to happen. It did happen and eventually I realised that I'd been given this position at least and I needed to fight for this area. You know, Australia, while we've gone backwards in the rankings in uh, press freedom and I think that's a disaster, still does include enjoy many freedoms that so many people don't. Um, you only have to look to China or Myanmar to see how the press is treated there. So I, I'm very hyper aware of the privilege I have of reporting in a country that offers some protections to journalists, a lot more than a lot of other countries, but that doesn't mean we need to set and forget. You know, we don't want to go backwards, which we have, and we also need to stand up and actually be um, an example of what other countries should aspire to. Uh, I believe if we go backwards, it, it almost allows for um, other countries to sort of be uh, some protection or cover to perhaps crack down on their media, and I don't want to be responsible for that. Mm. No, well, that's great. Thank you very much. And um, look forward to the book about the Prime Minister, who's actually been Prime Minister for a lot longer than previous Prime Ministers lately, which is, I suppose, good. Um, so thank you. Um, very much. The book On Secrets, Annika Smethurst, thank you for your time today. And for those listening, please feel free to rate this podcast channel, the New Books Network, that will be appreciated. And once again, Annika, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate that. Great to join you. Appreciate it. Thank you.